Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, good morning everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30 and of course you're listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. First up, we have to welcome in the studio this morning, Tim Sansom, all the way from uh, Australian Ecosystems. Good morning, Tim. Morning, Pam. How are you? I'm really well. And you? I'm all the better for the rain yesterday. <laughs> Aren't we all? What, what a, a relief. What a relief. I think, I think every time I come in, we, have, we start off talking about you know, recent weather, we recent weather events, <laughs> but it's especially important to last this last little mm. event. Absolutely. You know, my garden was looking like an absolute <sighs> skeleton. Mine's been a dust bowl. It's been yeah. shocking. So water tanks have got a bit of water in them now. Things perked up. I even noticed yesterday, just in, in the afternoon when, the, when it cleared, I just went for a wander around the garden. And just everything seemed to just pick up a little bit. Just oh, about, yes. Yeah, it might be five or ten mil of rain. But yes. Yeah. It'd be nice if we'd get a, a follow-up now, though. Yeah, for another couple of weeks. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Let it really soak in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure if I go and stick a spade in the ground, which I wasn't, which I wasn't, didn't have the heart to do yesterday. It won't have penetrated far. Yeah. I know, yeah. exactly. So, um, yes, bring it on. <laughs> yeah, bring on more rain. Yeah. Absolutely. Mind you, we're going to have a bit of wind today, and the wind is going to dry everything out again. Well, actually... The wind has been the story of the, the last mm. couple of weeks, hasn't mm. it? We've had these crazy easterly winds, wind coming from basically every point of the compass. That's right. And it's, yeah, it dries everything out. Everything gets, you know, no rain, plenty of wind, plants not happy. Yes. Me not happy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> ah, well, times are changing. Well, yeah. climate's We're changing. on the cusp, aren't we? We're we are on the cusp. Oh, well, we are. We're just past the equinox. That's right. And, you know, it, well, I was thinking that as I was driving in that, the summer seems to just go longer and longer. Oh, I know. You know and with the fires, we had fires last week, you know, quite catastrophic fires. This is deep into the season, right up to the equinox. I know. You know, there's, there's something afoot here for sure. Yeah. Mm. And I should remind listeners, um, daylight saving ends next weekend, next Saturday night, Sunday morning. Slash ah, so next week. Next, yes. We're going to miss the first hour. First of, of April. <laughs> we all get a sleep in for an extra hour, Tim. Yes. <laughs> I'm not complaining. No. Okay, we also have to say a very good morning to Dr. Chris Williams. Good morning, Chris. Hey, Pam. It's been a long time since you've been on, but I'm so pleased we've got you back. Yeah, it's really good to be back. Fantastic, yeah. and I've got heaps to catch up with okay. you about. <laughs> um, but also, we have to say a very good morning for the first time to Rosemary Kelly. Good morning, Rosemary. Good morning, Pam. And Rosemary, you're manager of the volunteers program out at Fairshare. I am. Fantastic. We're going to try and hear a whole lot about what Fairshare is doing because they do just a fantastic job. Wonderful. I'm really pleased to have the opportunity to be here. Brilliant. Brilliant. Okay. Um, what I'm going to do is get to um, a few community announcements fairly soon. But um, just, just to start us off, Chris, I'm dying to know, mm. um, because I didn't, we didn't, weren't talking to you last year, and last year um, as part of your novel Crops Project, yeah. You grew all those different varieties of sweet potatoes. Now, tell our listeners a little bit about that and, and what your results have been. Sure. So, and it actually has a very strong connection to uh, Fair Share. To Fair Share, exactly. Absolutely. So, um, that's right. So, when I was on last time, I think I w- I'd been growing them with the Dandenong horticulture team who work for council down there. And I think you're yeah. also out at the neighbourhood uh, ah, centre. Ah, of course. Doing, doing the project with the Carlton that's Neighbourhood right. Learning yes, Centre. Right. Yes. 
So, um, yeah, so the Novel Crops Project, we have about 14 different types of sweet potato now. And so the big thing has been trying to establish that they uh, grow in Melbourne and produce a really good yield. So we pretty much uh, proved that now, which is really exciting. Um, and it's interesting, Tim, talking about our long growing season now. I think that's made a huge difference. Mm. There are old gardening books that talk about growing sweet potatoes in Melbourne if you search hard enough. But they always say... You won't expect as big a yield as you would in Queensland or something like that. Well, but, I mean, yeah. when, when I was involved with yeah. the community gardens around Melbourne, um, and, yeah. of course, the, the gardeners on in, in those gardens were trying to grow sweet potato because many of them, it was their, mm. their, their crop from back home, like East Timor or wherever. Right. But they weren't getting crops. They were having to leave them in the ground virtually for two years to get any sort of decent root growth. That's interesting because there's a couple of varieties where I'm experimenting with that now. Right, But there's one critical factor which has been a a light bulb moment for me which should have been obvious, which is that they just need full blasting sun. Okay. So if you're growing them in the tropics where the sun is overhead most of the year or all year really or even Mm. in the subtropics, they'll they'll produce a little bit better in a home garden in a little bit of shade. But the reality is down here, which makes them an awesome plant for climate change because they're so heat tolerant that, you know, all other factors considered, nutrition, water and all the rest of it, but maximum solar exposure and you will get incredible yields. And that was the, um, because I'd been growing them in a kind, you know, I like to grow edible landscapes with a huge aesthetic value as well. Yes, exactly. So I'd had these incredible crops and then I'd had some that were a bit disappointing with the same variety. And then I suddenly thought, hang on a second, these are being shaded by the taro or whatever I'm growing. Okay. And then it was really the uh, the experience with Danny Nong and Fair Share, where you know Fair Share's uh, growing program is you know if you like very serious, like we need to produce as much as possible. Exactly, they need volume. And I'll, you know, let Rosie explain that. And there were a couple of varieties that I thought, oh, these are a bit marginal in Melbourne, uh, including one called Kessel, which is a beige <laughs> sweet potato. Okay, I won't <laughs> dominate the conversation with sweet potatoes. There's lots more to talk no, about. No, 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 that's right. Then um, Susie Scott at Fair Share had put them in these very open, exposed beds. And they were massive. Right. Right. So now, so it, it just completely exposed sight. So mm. it is, it's light for do, Melbourne. Do you think yeah. it's to do with warmth in the, in the soil as well? Like you, that maximum uh, solar exposure yeah. lifts the temperature of the soil, lifts root growth? I think so. Although they do, they, you know, they're the classic plant that's not unhappy with a cooling mulch too. Yeah, okay. But no, I agree. I think, um, that's right. So even if they're a bit, even if the uh, temperatures are high, as long as they have adequate soil moisture, mm. they're going to be huge. But um, so there's, I've sort of uh, over the last year, kind of, now I'm really experimenting at the Burnley Field Station, where yes. it's very exposed, okay. where we actually grow zucchinis um, into June. That's the record. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, June the first, um, <laughs> but technically June. Um, no, it, it just shows. I think what happens in a lot of we forget this. A lot of home gardens that are you know backyard gardens where you've got buildings and trees. Um, we a, a, exactly as we go into equinox, as the shadows start getting longer, a lot of crops actually go into decline probably more quickly than they would mm. if they were in a more exposed area. Now, once upon a time in Melbourne, of course, you could expect a frost sometimes in late April. Yes or certainly in May occasionally, or at least certainly getting down to two or three degrees. Now, I know that, has, that hasn't happened for ages. The last site, you know, with the vegetable crops we grow with Burnley students, in 2011 there was a late April frost, because we're down near the river there, yes, there of right? Yes, uh, So you expect that. And there, there were all the melted zucchinis and that miserable 
tomatoes. So that's seven years right. on a very flat, low surface. So, okay. so in other words, um, the climate envelope's increased for something like a sweet potato. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're, we're talking about, and I think, I think Rose has got all the stats there, but fair share, for example, when you added up all the, the yield of the sweet potatoes of the different varieties for the three sites where they grow, it came, and this was even, you know, with varieties that actually genuinely aren't as good in Melbourne or it, with some suboptimal conditions, it came out to about 25 tonnes to the hectare. Right. Which is Bundaberg levels, people. Yes. Yeah. So that's amazing. Wow. Yeah. Tell us about the different varieties. I mean, yeah, is, sure. Um, is, is it aesthetics mainly? Is it flavour? Is it nutrition? Right. Yes, What's I mean, you know, again, I, I hesitate in some ways to talk about nutrition. I'm not an expert, but you know, there are there is, for example, and you would know working with cultivators, you know, with the the public housing gardens. Yes, that's right. That um, many people from Southeast Asia pre- much prefer the purple skin. Variety, definitely right. Yes. You know, in fact, they're completely snobbish about it. <laughs> they won't touch the orange ones, in my experience. So yeah, so that you have different textures. Yes. Of of the Very flesh. Very different. Yep. Um, so the, the orange ones are famously more mushy, yes. like a pumpkin, really. Yes. Um, there's a all purple one, purple outside, purple inside, which I'm growing quite a few of this year, which is called red garnet. And last time I checked, there's one family in Bundaberg because that's, that dominates the sweet potato industry in Australia, <laughs> the commercial industry. And that's very fibrous. Okay. But in a good way. Yes, okay. Um, so very different. Then this, uh, the beige one I was talking about um, is an Australian variety called Kessel, which is a sort of mashup of the three ag scientists who created it. And that's, uh, in fact, Susie at Fair Share really rates this one because it, it and it, she's right, it fries well. Okay. Okay. So it's a really good uh, chip. Chippy yes, potato, yes. Uh, sweet potato. Um, what else? Then there's the sort of turn, or can be kind of ball-shaped, turnip-shaped white sweet potato from the United States, which we call white yam, which is really a terrible because they're not yams. But anyway, no, okay. Um, and that's more like a potato, vaguely, I guess. Mm-hmm. Right. So they're definitely different, and yep. you 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 start thinking, mm, I'm in the mood for this one tonight. And mm-hmm. so again, that just proves that quite often what we get. In, you know, in supermarkets, for example, it's very limited compared to the full global experience oh, sure, we could be happening. Sure, you know, but having. even even talking about supermarkets, yeah. I mean, they used to have one variety only. Now yeah. they're at least stocking three oh, different yeah. varieties, yeah. so it, it, it yeah. is on and, the increase. And that's right. There's been this the things like farmers markets, for example, have increased people's awareness of diversity and their mm. enjoyment of it. Mm. And so, for example, the the all purple sweet potato I was talking about was actually written up in a Coles, you know, the, at the checkout, I was handed this Coles magazine. All right. <laughs> you know, cheesy magazine, and I read through it, and that's where I found out the name of this thing. Okay. Because it was profiling a farmer. And it was very funny. I, occasionally you get this kind of honest, not, not occasionally, I guess, but it was interesting, the farmer talking about, oh, you know, these ones just do whatever they like. That w- what he meant was that they'll grow in very odd positions in the soil. And so they're a bit of a... And they have really weird shapes. Right. So um, it's interesting, though, obviously through the magazine, trying to raise, raise consumer awareness about you won't get the perfect torpedo-shaped sweet potato. Yes. Because that is an issue. We know with the war on waste, for example. Oh, isn't that it that about people, time pe- we right? forgot that? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so sweet potatoes will... Anyone who's grown them knows, anyone who's seen them... All shapes. Oh, absolutely yeah. bizarre. Alien intestines, <laughs> some, someone said to me once. They're really odd. I like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's a variety that I've seen in the yeah. supermarket, which is a white out... And a purple in. That's right. That's Hawaiian, Hawaiian sun- sunshine. Yeah. Yes. Hawaiian, Hawaiian sunshine. Yes. Yeah, that's pretty very popular with um, 
uh, you know, um, Asian communities, for example. Mm. Yeah. And is, what's the variety? Because mm. isn't there a whole uh, nutrition or sort of longevity story with the Okinawans in Japan? They they live on a staple diet of a. I, th- I thought it was a purple sweet potato. I think it's it could actually be that one. Um, well, it's the anthocyanins. It's it's oh, the, yeah, okay. you know it's all these phytochemicals compounds that we should be eating more of. Mm. The sweet potato is rich in those, depending on the colour of the of the type. So. You know, for example, there was an Australian-sponsored program to increase the consumption of orange sweet potatoes in Africa because the white ones didn't have enough uh, better carotene, for example. Okay, So yes. they're not universally pumped full of nutrients, but okay. yeah. But there, are, uh, no, there is also just a fantastic source of. Uh, like, I sound like a sweet potato industry promoter. <laughs> they're also a fantastic source of low GI carbs. No, they are. They are. Um, and um, you know, I'm very into the history of crops. I find you know absolutely fascinating. And there's there's a reason that sweet potatoes just exploded globally once the um, the Spanish and the Portuguese took them from South America and introduced them to most of the world. The Polynesians already had it. One of the great mysteries. Um, because when people realised how easy it was to grow and how um, the, the high yields, everyone went for it. Mm. Um, in fact, in New Guinea, uh, the sweet potato arrived in, in New Guinea in the 1600s, I believe, and being such you know, uh, ancient gardeners, so experienced, so skilled, they sort of took sweet potatoes to another level. So mm. now that in 400 years, the people of PNG have turned sweet potato uh, into a, they've created an epicenter of diversity, which is just a remarkable wow. story. Yes, yeah. and is yeah to grow them for the home garden. Yeah, because I know when we were diggers, we used to sell we used to sell our wine, sunshine, Beauregard, yeah. and one Northern or two Star. Others. I think yeah, is the standard Northern. purple wine. Yeah, yes. yeah. Um, we would we would offer them in two ways, either mm. as a as a tuber to, yeah. for people to plant, or and which was actually quite handy for people at home. If you yes. get one growing, especially if this was of Beauregard, yep. you can take cuttings quite easily. Sure. And strike a, a number of plants in one season pretty quickly. How have you been propagating? Yeah, so that's a, that's, that actually is very relevant to the you know successful culture of sweet potatoes. You really need to force the slips, the, the, the shoots, the cuttings out of the tuber as early as you can, although if you have, if you have access to a polytunnel or, or even just you know, by a window ledge, they'll, they'll shoot. I think it's in, it, what what is a mistake though is to plant the sweet potato tuber straight in the ground, and that's it's interesting that you'll you'll see that all over the world people say that don't do that yeah. because they just t- takes a little bit longer for them to force the shoots, um, and then they sort of they have this strange behaviour. I'm sure it's scientifically you know explainable. I'm not going to better do that right now. It's too early. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, yeah. But but it's actually uh, the traditional practice is to force the cuttings outside of planting, pull them off the tuber, the slips, right. and shove those cuttings straight in the ground. Okay. Now, I think, you know, what we do is take the cuttings in a, in a glass house or a greenhouse and just form a little uh, plant. To, to some strike them in potting media. Exactly. Yeah. Strike yes. them and strike yeah. them in potting media. And then put them in the ground, and that's when we get these great yields. So, right. so don't take your tuber and put it in the ground. Yeah. Force the slips. Either yep. then propagate them separately in a pot, and then plant them. Mm. And they do strike very readily. Oh, I mean, the, the practice of just putting them straight in the oh, ground they, indicates well, that. And I've done that this year I've, at Burnley. Even you know, it's interesting talking about the our summer we've had. December was three times the average rainfall. <laughs> right. Yes. This year, or yes. like just last year. Yes. It was also quite warm too. Mm. So um, tropical. We were in, we, yeah, we were in a short La Nina. That's that's what happened. So 
So I've, I've grown, uh, I'm doing some very basic trials at Burnley at the moment, but one of the plots I've done is just taking cuttings and sticking them straight in the ground just to see what happens. In, okay. in December? So in December, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. yeah. Um, they look, yeah, I must admit, they look like they are a little bit behind because they got stressed because there were suddenly two days of 35 degrees. They still strike. Yeah. Sim says it is, you know, sweet potatoes are in the genus Ipomia, they're in the family Convolvulaceae, and that genus and that family are famous for striking easily. Mm, okay. Hence the, uh, you know, nightmare of uh, morning glory taking, oh, yes. taking over our garden. Yes, right? yes. Rooting at the nodes, doing whatever. Running like crazy. Yeah. Mm. Um, when, when you were growing all of these yeah. sweet potatoes, and, and specifically when you were growing them for, for fair share, sure. um, were you taking into account the leaves at all? Were you harvesting the leaves? Um, I, I did mention that to fair share, and Rosie, I can't remember. I don't think it's been used in the kitchen at all, has it? I don't think I've heard or seen any leaves from the plants. Yeah. Okay. But, but I will say that when we harvested uh, at Dandenong last year outside with the the gardening team down there, right yep. outside the Dandenong Market. Because we did that. We'd done it for two years or three years, I think, in the park, Dandenong Park, which is being renovated. And, of course, Dandenong Market is such a thriving, you know, diverse, oh, extraordinary yes, place. exactly. So we had this opportunity to do it outside the market, and uh, we had this very successful harvest. And that was interesting. That diff- you know, that f- For example, I remember these ladies from Ghana walking past were saying we really want to eat the leaves because yes. we have some. And so they, yes. they just filled bags full of them from the yes. back of the ute because we were just about to go and throw the rest of it out and compost it. So, so it, it seems to vary. So when we did the program with the Carlton Neighbourhood Learning Centre, um, yeah, Vietnamese, uh, our Vietnamese participants said, yes, we, we, we do eat the leaves. Um, and then other, other cultures were saying, no, we don't. We've never heard of that. Mm. There you go. Okay. So it's very, but, of course, the leaves are high-protein, they taste great if you cook them, I think. You can eat them a few raw. I think it's. Like, I think generally yeah. um, the gardeners that I was associating yeah. with were, were putting them into soups and stews. Exa- exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I wouldn't recommend them as a salad. They're not, they don't have any sort of toxicity issues. Probably no, no. no but, but, but still. Yeah. 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 But, not but, raw. You have to wilt yeah. them all. Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. But it is another source of leafy yeah. greens, which is why I thought maybe Fair Share might have jumped on board um, particularly if, if you had a season where you weren't getting great yields of the actual um, tubers. That, I think that the, well, we see what will happen this year. See, last March, the average temperature during the month was 27. That's very warm for March. We're yes. probably going to be 25 degrees this year. Mm-hmm. So I think that sort of finishing off the sweet potato crop in Melbourne um, it may, yeah, I think the warmer the March, the better for them, which is probably not a good thing long-term in terms of climate but it's what, change. But it's what's happening. It's what's happening. Yeah. That's, that's it's reality right. now. That's um, right. So we'll see. We'll see. But I, I think um, uh, I, I think you'd have to have a very old-school, pre-climate change Melbourne autumn of just sort of dismal March and April for the crop to decline. Yeah. That may never happen again. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. All right. Um, Rosemary, can I call you Rosie? Sure, sure. Um, let's talk about fair share. Let's talk about because fair share. Because many of our listeners will have never heard of it. Probably not. Some no. Have, some so how have. did you get started? What's the whole aim of fair share? What are you trying to achieve? Okay. So fair share is a food charity, uh, primarily. We're based in Abbotsford, just up the road from where we are now. Um, we have a kitchen there, and we are cooking meals from food that we either go out and rescue because it's headed for landfill, and we go out and collect it. 
or we um, have food donated. And through our kitchen garden program, we now grow vegetables and herbs that go into the meals that we cook. We um, are reliant heavily on volunteers for what we do. We have over a 1,000 volunteers who, who volunteer with us in the kitchen, who drive our vans, who also, uh, we've got about 180 who volunteer in our three kitchen gardens now. Um, and we make 1.2 million meals a year. That's phenomenal. And those meals are then distributed to over... Uh, 400 charities in Melbourne and through country Victoria. Mm. And we give them all away. All our meals are given away for free. Right. So the reason we got into the Kitchen Garden Program, which goes back a couple of years now, is that we were reliant on what was coming in off the back of our vans in terms of vegetables. And vegetables go into all of the meals that we cook, even the meat-based casseroles and our sausage rolls that we do, we make every day our staples, all have vegetables in them because obviously vegetables add huge nutritional value. That's right. And these people might be getting, it might be the, their only meal for the day. You've got to put it full of, chock a block full of nutrition if you can. That's right. Our meals are not only tasty but obviously very healthy and nutritious. We have mm. to make them as healthy and nutritious as we can. Um, and so we were very um, lucky, fortunate to have got a lot of support a couple of years ago and a lot of interest from uh, people who would provide us with funding, with, with land that we were provided. So our first kitchen garden we set up at um, Abbotsford uh, on land next to the Victoria Park Railway Station. And uh, that's where I think, Chris, you were originally involved, yes, were you, in, in helping us set up that mm. garden? Um, and uh, we grew um, um, various vegetables, but, but obviously the, the basic vegetables that we need to make to put into our meals all year round and we could plan our production of vegetables so we knew when we would harvest and the chefs in the kitchen had a much better idea of what they would be able to cook with rather than just... Not knowing what was coming in. in off the back yes. of the vans, yes. yes. Um, our second garden is uh, on land given it to, to us, a parcel of land at Moorabbin Airport. And the third kitchen garden, which is the largest one we operate out of, is the Les Bagley Farm down in South Clayton. And we had been volunteering down there uh, maybe three or four years prior, and, uh, and then we'd, we'd moved away and um, we, were, we had more discussions with Les and we were able to go back and plant vegetables uh, and work out of Les's uh, land out at Clayton South. And that uh, that's gives us the largest yields because it's the largest garden of the yes, three. Of but all three are very important. Mm. I've been amazed just just um, riding on the train coming in on the Hurstbridge line yes. to look to look out and mm. I mean the, the the Collingwood one is huge so I hate to think how big the, the Bagley one is. Uh, I don't know the the uh, overall I think we're we're growing veggies over around two and a half acres that's the three gardens combined, combined. I'm right. not but the Bagley farm is uh, is the largest in terms of area and also we we have the larger we have 110 of our volunteers at the Bagley farm and we've got um at um, I've got the stats here. At Abbotsford, we've got 50, and uh, at we've got Moorabbin, we've got 20. We're not there every day. We operate on different days. Okay. We're on different days out there, yeah. Now, you also, I know because I've done this myself when I had a, a huge glut of chocos, I've brought the chocos <laughs> into you people. But, but Thank you. Uh, <laughs> it was a pleasure. It got some of the chocos out of my kitchen too. Yeah. But 
But um, how often do people just spontaneously, if they have excess produce, quite often, come in? Quite often, in fact. Just maybe about three weeks ago, a, uh, I took a, a call on a Friday afternoon, which is, you know, end of the week for us and we're sort of, everything's quiet. Uh, and a woman rang up. She was a local and she said, look, my mum's got this uh, big garden at King Lake and she's given me all these veggies and I, uh, she wanted me to donate them to you. Can I bring them in? I said, sure. She brought them in. They were just beautiful, beautiful yeah. vegetables, all different types of veggies. Fantastic. And we were very grateful to receive them. And, and people bring in lemons off their lemon tree. Mm. They bring in tomatoes from their gardens if they've grown any. Um, and, yeah, we're always very, very, um, very happy to receive those uh, those donations of homegrown veggies because it's nothing better, really. Absolutely, mm. yeah. yes. Yeah. So you have um, one team of volunteers that actually work in the gardens. Then yes. I presume you have a separate team of volunteers that work in the kitchens. Yes, most of our volunteers are kitchen volunteers because the kitchen's been around. We've been around for 17 years. Uh, we're currently in our... Um, in our kitchen in South Audley Street, and we've been there for five years. Uh, it's the largest charity kitchen in Australia. So most of our volunteers are, I mean, we've probably got 800 volunteers working out of there over shifts, um, mornings, afternoons and evenings during the week, and we have a Saturday morning shift as well. Um, we are very fortunate. We've got a, a waiting list of about 1,300 for the kitchen wow. at the moment. Mm. Okay. So if people are interested in volunteering, um, then they need to go to our website, which is www.fairshare.net.au slash volunteering. They can register online. Um, if, they're, if they're interested in the kitchen, then it's going to take quite a while for us to get to them and invite them in for an information session. But if they are interested in gardening, and specifically gardening at the Bagley Farm, which is in Clayton South, so um, if they're down living around that area and they'd like to volunteer with us, we have uh, vacancies available now. Uh, we've got shifts there on a Monday morning, a Tuesday morning, a Thursday morning, and Saturday mornings, 9 till 12. Okay. Um, we are specifically looking for more volunteers on Saturday mornings, 9 till 12. So if they are interested in volunteering and they, they get onto our website, they can register their details and they put down that they're interested in the garden and Bagley Farm specifically, we'll be able to offer them something in the very near future. Now, do they have to be expert gardeners? Are they working under supervision so that they're giving some, given some chores to do? No, they don't have to be expert gardeners because we'll teach them everything they need to know. It is, it is physical work. It's out, outdoors, so it's generally all weathers. Um, uh, they need to, so they need to be fit and healthy and able to bend and, and move around fairly easily. So if they have any mobility issues, that would probably prevent them from being able to volunteer with us. Um, what we do out in the gardens is we plant, we weed, we water, we mulch, we fertilise, we compost, we have worm farms. Um, there's lots of, we've got a, um, an apiary, I think, at one of the gardens, Chris. I'm looking at you. Yeah. You're looking back. <laughs> I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure at, at mm. one of the gardens, we, it, it could be Moorabbin actually, I'm not exactly sure. Could be, and actually it's at Abbotsford, it's at Abbotsford. I okay. Think. Um, but but we've got special people to look after the bees. Oh, you don't good. need to go near the bees. Um, but look, yes, if you're fit and uh, and healthy and and willing to work uh, for three hours, uh, you get to meet lots of wonderful other volunteers. You'll be supervised. You'll be you'll you'll learn lots of things. We've had people who've volunteered in our gardens who thought they knew quite a bit about gardening, and they have told me. Um, how much more they've learned just from working with people like Susie Scott, who's our kitchen garden program manager, and others. Um, 
Uh, you pick up lots of things when you're out there. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, it's great exercise, and you're getting it's fresh air. Fresh air. It's much much cheaper than gym a gym membership, Absolutely. as we always say. That's yes. right. Yes. <laughs> Definitely. Tell me a little bit more about um, the food you cook. You, it, it's got to be highly nutritious, understandably. Do you have to allow for different cultural palates at all? Uh, we do, and we do a variety of meals every day. So we have two separate uh, kitchens within our main kitchen facility. We've got a pastry kitchen where we make sausage rolls, veggie rolls and quiche every day. But even the sausage rolls, as I mentioned before, have veggies um, ploughed into them yes. because we're, it's vegetables and everything we make. But what goes into those, those pastry meals every day will change depending on what the chefs have got to cook with. In the other kitchen, we make our casserole meals, we make soups, we make stews, curries, pasta sauces. Some of those are vegetable-based, some of those are meat-based, but the meat-based ones also have vegetables in them. Mm. Um, So there's always a variety. The chefs kind of have to be fairly good at improvising, depending on what they've got to to work with, what's available in the cool room or the freezer, uh, what's coming in off the back of the vans every day. We've got eight vans on the road collecting food. Uh, mainly from supermarkets, I'd have to say. Okay. We do go to some of the, the, the larger fresh food markets as well, but we're visiting um, 80 Woolworths supermarkets every day. And, um, not sorry, every day, every week. Right. Some, some get more than one visit, and they provide us different types of um, foods that they might be near use by date, they can't sell, uh, so we'll collect them and bring them in. But as we were talking about vegetables before, a lot of vegetables, as you know, are left on the shelves in supermarkets and yes. food stores because people, consumers like us, are fussy. We don't like certain colours. Or, you know, a, a, a carrot or a potato has to be a certain shape or size or colour. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with the ones that are left. They're just not quite as beautiful in the traditional way as, as we would like. And so we collect all of those odd-shaped um, and leftover foods, there's nothing wrong with the, the, the insides. They may not look mm. uh, 100% on the outside. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, and uh, in terms of we don't cater for, you know, we don't do gluten-free or anything like that, but we do do a lot of vegetarian-based meals because we know that there are a lot of people out there who, for religious or cultural reasons, would prefer not to eat meat or don't eat meat. Right. Um, and as Chris was saying before about sweet potato, sweet potato we know is very appealing to a number of different cultures mm. uh, who are recipients of our meals. And um, and so you know, they, they've been very, very popular. And the chefs love cooking with sweet potatoes because there's so many different varieties coming in now from the gardens. And, uh, and they're all low GI and, um, and very good for you. Mm. So where, <clears throat> where do the meals actually get distributed mm. to? How do people um, who are homeless, on the streets, whatever... How do they manage to receive these meals? Okay, so most of our meals, not all, but most of our meals go via Food Bank in Yarraville. Food Bank okay. is, is Victoria's largest food charity and they provide us with storage and distribu- storage space at their facility in Yarraville. So every day one of our vans will pick up around 5,000 meals, which is what we've made in the last 24 hours, transport them over to Yarraville where they're ready to be picked up by charities. There's about 400 charities in Melbourne and Country Victoria registered with Food Bank to receive uh, food from Food Bank and meals that, that we will provide to Food Bank, fair share meals. Um, so they pick them up and then they take them out to where they're operating from. Mm-hmm. So some charities operate in many, many different ways. So some will have a food parcel service where they're actually providing 
parcels of food that people can come in and take home because although there are lots of people who are homeless, living in refuges, uh, who, are, who need help with food relief, there are a hell of a lot of families and a growing number of families and individuals living in their own homes who are struggling to put a meal on their table, mm. um, maybe one night a week. They just can't afford to put food on their table. Okay. Um, their budget hasn't stretched. They've had to you know, decide whether or not they pay an important power bill or whether they, can, uh, they, they have enough food for you know, a night's meal. So mm. um, the charities are telling us that there are more people coming to them uh, to request food uh, who are living at home. Mm. So they could uh, take home a fair share meal, heat it up at home for their families. Then obviously there's um, people living on the streets who would go maybe to a St Vinnie's soup van. Right. St Vinnie's um, would provide soups, which we, we, of, we often provide soups to St Vinnie's. We give it to them in bulk. They heat them in bulk and serve them direct from the vans. Um, but they might also have some of our pastry meals that people can eat in their own in their hands. They don't yes, need right. to sit down to eat. So yes. they're very versatile and, and, and easy to uh, to give out and, and obviously nutritious as well. Mm. And um, hot on a cold and hot. night. Mm. Yeah, and then there might be other um, charities like Sacred Heart Mission who are catering for hundreds of people every day. They're cooking breakfast and lunch. They will, they will take some of our meals and they might serve them uh, serve a sausage roll with a salad that they make themselves and a bread roll for a yes. complete meal. Yes. So um, there's lots of different ways that charities can operate and we provide a variety of meals at, to them so that they can select what's going to be um, best for them. That's fantastic. Mm. Yeah. So so how long ago did Fair Share start? Who Fair, started it? Fair Share was started back in 2001 and it was started by a, a group or a couple of groups of people who just really wanted to do something practical about all the food that they could see going to waste while they could also, they knew that people were going hungry. Um, it was started by, I'd have to say, I'll, I'll give um, kudos to a guy called Guido Pozzabon, who was the pastry chef at the RACV club when it was in Queen Street. And he uh, asked to borrow the kitchen at the RACV club and then gathered some like-minded friends together on a Saturday morning and they initially made 300 pies on a Saturday morning. That was their, their only meal, the signature meal. Okay. Uh, and then they gave those pies out to a charity in the CBD to give out. And they called themselves One Umbrella. Um, they probably never, ever uh, expected that what they started back in 2001 would have evolved to what Fair Share is today. Um, sadly, the reason that the organisation has grown over the journey is in direct response to the level of demand mm. and the level of need in our society and the fact that, that uh, charities are telling us and have been telling us for a number of years that they're struggling to keep up with demand on their services for food right. relief. So um, what started as a group of people doing something to give back to the community has grown into a much larger community of people now who are, uh, who are aligned with Fair Share. Uh, helping to give back to the, mm. to our community, not just in um, Melbourne but country Victoria. In fact, I should mention that on Friday, one of our fantastic volunteers, Lee Harry, who's a driver, drove to Cobden. He he, we packed up a uh, at one of our vans with pallets of meals that we'd made, and he drove them down to Cobden to the bushfire victims, and they were given oh, out to Blaze Aid. And yes. yeah, they were. 
incredibly welcomed, I believe. I'm and, sure. and And Lee did a, a round trip, like 400k round trip to Cobden and back on Friday, oh. having already done his regular shift on Thursday. Uh, we just put a call out and asked if one of our volunteers could do a run to Cobden and he put his hand up and wow. said, thank you, Lee. I don't know whether he's <laughs> listening, but we're very grateful to him. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's mm. fantastic. Mm. And, of course, um, out of, out of this, this growing need, you need the stability of the supplies, which is why you've, you've then taken up parcels of land to, to try and actually grow your own yeah. as well. Yeah, it's been a fantastic initiative and it's really, really helped us with our production in the kitchen. It's also provided, obviously, an opportunity to, um, for Chris and his, and his friends to, uh, to uh, help us and also do a lot of research, especially in the area of sweet potatoes, which has been a fantastic... <laughs> yeah, a fantastic but, but, initiative. But, but also to, uh, you know, prove that you could grow serious quantities of crops on um, effectively perched raised beds on yeah. top of uh, what we can assume is contaminated land. Yes, like de- dealing with the contamination. Yes. Yeah, so Particularly beside a railway line. Or, exactly. Yes. So um, when I went there with my colleague uh, Peter May, Dr. Peter May, we, we, we looked at this <laughs> inhospitable site. And uh, which Kelly Watson had decided was a perfect place to, if you could get the the deal with Dictrack to use it, and thought, wow, okay, so this is where we could do uh, a first for Melbourne, done done in other parts of the world, particularly the sort of Rust Belt cities in North America, where you just get an area of land that you assume is contaminated or even is concrete, mm. and just um, in, in the case of the the fair share example. Um, crushed compacted gravel over the top. It had drainage, it has to be said, yes, the site already, which was really advantageous. Then um, plastic over the top, then the imported mix on top of that at about 50, about 50 centimetres, 500 mil from memory. And um, even though I think there's one or two beds that where you get this sort of saturated layer, so it's a little bit moist, although that didn't seem to be a problem, overall that's worked really well, mm. especially into the second season. So... Because, um, as far as I know, that hadn't been done at that scale in Melbourne before. Not, mm. not, because it's a thousand, is it 800 square metres or a thousand square metres at, at, at Victoria at Park? Yeah, yeah at Abbotsford. Sure. Uh, so that's, so just so people realise that, that's, uh, a lot of food coming off something that is, is just sitting on top of the ground. Yes. Yeah. Fantastic. How, how secure is the land on the three sites? Are you on a, a, a long-term lease or what's the situation? Um, the land at Abbotsford or Vic Park is was Vic Track land. Um, I know we've been given it for a, a period of time. I'm not exactly sure how long. Um, and the reason we did plant above was because of the suspected contamination. Um, the land at uh, Moorabbin is also on a, a, a loan, I suppose, um, through Moorabbin Airports Corporation, okay. uh, which is owned by the Goodman Foundation. So the Goodman Foundation provided us with the land. I'm not sure of the period of time. Right. And obviously, Les Bagley, the, the farm, we're, we're assisting Les down there and we're welcome for as long as Les welcomes us on the land, right. I presume, down there. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. So, I mean, we, look, we, we're, um, we're, we've invested time and, and obviously funding into uh, setting up all th- two of those gardens and, and helping the third garden. We hope that we can stay mm. um, because obviously there's benefits for in, in so many ways from, oh, having, yes. from having us there. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's high time we opened up our talkback lines. If you'd like to join in the conversation this morning or ask a question, we have uh, 
Tim Sansom from uh, he's the nursery general manager out at Australian Ecosystems. We have Dr. Chris Williams uh, from uh, Melbourne University, Burnley campus, and also uh, Rosemary Kelly, who's the manager of the volunteers program with Fair Share. We'd love to hear from you this morning. Uh, do give us a call. We're running through until 9.15, so plenty of time to jump on board. That number is 94190155. That's 94190155. I might just take this opportunity to go through a few community announcements because there are a couple of things on. Firstly, a reminder that today is the last day of the Melbourne International Flower and Garden Show. So if you've been meaning to get out there uh, this week and haven't quite made it yet, um, it is uh, open today for the last day, opening at 9 o'clock this morning, so running through until about 5 o'clock this afternoon. Um, Now, uh, coming up uh, at uh, Garden of St Earth, which of course is part of the Diggers Club, um, I think if anyone's been listening to the program over the last couple of weeks, um, most of the, uh, the diggers' uh, club gardens have been having a festival of one sort or another. Well, it's, uh, next weekend is uh, the Garden of St Earth's uh, uh, festival, and they're doing an apple festival there. Now, um, you're going to, uh, if you go out, it's open on next Saturday the 7th and next Sunday the 8th of April. Uh, there's going to be mini workshops as part of the program. So there'll be things like covering like uh, soil improvement, using rock dust, companion planting for apples and pears, uh, growing garlic, espalier apple tree pruning, perennial combinations, uh, perennial vegetables, selecting trees for your orchard, uh, pests and diseases, and so on it goes. There'll be garden tours running each day at 11am and 3pm. Also, children's activities from 11am through to 3pm each day. There'll also be um, one masterclass um, which will take place on the Saturday running from 11am. And uh, this will be with Mike Nielsen, who's um, the Diggers Espalia and Fruit Expert. Now, this is a four-hour class which includes lunch and a glass of wine, and they'll be covering topics like heritage varieties and their uses, plant management, fertilising and pruning for shape and fruit production, pests and diseases, and, of course, espalier. So there is a cost for that masterclass. Um, For Diggers members, $89. For others, $99. Now, as I mentioned, all of this is taking place next weekend, 9am to 5pm on both days, and... uh, Entry uh, Diggers Club members and under-16s are free. For visitors, $10. If you'd like more information, jump on their website. They've got all the details there, which is www.diggers.com.au. Now, the other thing I should mention is that Open Gardens Victoria have got three gardens opening next weekend. Now, these gardens are all uh, at Kyneton. And uh, the gardens are very close to each other, so it's a wonderful opportunity to actually visit the three gardens. You can actually walk between each garden um, and have a look. So the three gardens are the Wedgwoods, Scotchman's Hill and Brocklebank Gardens. Uh, Now, the Wedgwoods is a five-acre garden with several intimate garden rooms, a wisteria tunnel and a chestnut grove. 
Scotsman's Hill is a sloping garden on the site of an old bluestone quarry where swathes of planting spill down the hill and there are views across the Kyneton Township and to Mount Macedon and uh, the Brocklebank Garden has been established within the framework of trees dating back more than a century and features Australia, uh, American-inspired prairie plantings of ornamental grasses. So uh, a massive uh, variety between those three gardens. Now, I will give the addresses. Brocklebank uh, is at 12 Brocklebank Drive in Kyneton. Scotsman's Hill is at Lot 4, 79 Wedge Street in Kyneton. And the Wedgewoods is also in Wedge Street. It's at 88 Wedge Street in Kyneton. Now, those uh, three gardens are open 10 a.m. till 4.30 on both Saturday and Sunday. Entry is $8 per garden or um, $20 for all three gardens. Children under 18 are free and students are $5 per garden. There will also be refreshments available at the Scotchman's Hill Garden. Now, uh, we do, um, as often happens, Open Gardens Victoria have been very kind uh, and given us uh, a free double pass, one for each of the gardens. So the first three listeners who ring up and ring 94190155, you can get one free double pass to one of those three gardens and the double pass will be posted out to you. So the number, if you want one of those double passes, 94190155. Just uh, another uh, couple of announcements I should make. Firstly, um, uh, and Chris, you might be a party of this, I don't know, but Friends of Burnley Gardens uh, have got a native plant propagation workshop coming up. This is taking place on Saturday, April the 14th, 10.30 through till 11.30, so it just runs for the hour. The cost is $20, that includes morning tea, and participants will be taught by members of the Friends Plant Propagation Group on how to propagate a range of plants, and you take your work home with you. Now, uh, bookings are essential. The workshop is limited to 20 participants, Um, For all details, you need to go to the Friends website, which is fobg.org.au, or um, uh, you can phone the Friends group and leave a message. That number is 90356861. That's 90356861. Now, also taking place that same day down there will be a plant sale in conjunction with with the workshop. So the plant sale is running 10.30, running through till 12 o'clock. For um, anyone who's participating in the workshop, you'll still have an extra half hour at the end if you want to buy some plants. Uh, There'll be a range of native, exotic and produce plants. The location will be outside the Student Union building there. And, of course, there's parking on Yarra Boulevard. Melway's map reference there is 45 um, and also X872. Uh, payments are by cash only, though. And, of course, funds raised go to Burnling Gardens projects. Uh, finally, um, this is an advance notice um, that uh, the uh, Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra Group, group um, 
coming up have got their um, regular autumn native plant and book sale. Now, this is on Saturday the 28th of April, 10am through to 4pm. It will be held at the Senior Citizens Centre, which is 903 Main Road in Eltham. Free entry for that one. And there'll be tube stock to advance plants, indigenous and grafted stock, and books on related subjects as well, all at great prices. So uh, that is coming up, and I will remind you of this in the next uh, few programs, but that is coming up on the 28th of April, 10 a.m. through to 4 p.m. All right, uh, as I said, if you'd like to join us this morning, uh, do give us a call. That number is 94190155. Tim, let's have a chat to you about um, what projects uh, Australian ecosystems are working on at the moment. Oh, plenty of projects. I, I think probably our, the, the biggest um, activity for the nursery over the summer, apart from our standard growing plants, has been our seed collect season. We've just wound up our summer seed collect. So we have a, a team of uh, four or five, um, including contractors that go out and collect seed from the Greater Melbourne area. And they basically start up, start a cup weekend mm-hmm. and spend every day going out into the bush and finding various species that are on our hit list. Um, a significant operation. We, it starts in the winter time with having to get all our permits and um, to make sure we've got all our, our I's yes, dotted and yes. T's crossed to make sure we've, we're abiding by all the, the legal requirements. Absolutely. Um, but that is, that is basically the foundation of our operation, is to get all this material, this genetic material out of the wild. We then have this massive operation of cleaning it down. You should see some of the ways that mm. we clean seed. Are, I, I actually... From my, my um, time with diggers, I have some connections with the seed industry and some um, seed cleaning contacts. And I brought a, a, a fellow called Gary in who's got 50 years of seed cleaning experience. I brought him in to say if he, he could help us with our seed cleaning techniques. Okay. He walked in and he was aghast because he, 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 was, he was so impressed with right. what we were doing. And okay. Some of the machines that, that, that Australian ecosystems have invented over the last 20 mm. years. We've got this one machine which is a, a leaf blower. So we all know what a leaf blower yes. is, a petrol leaf blower. But we've turned it inside out. Um, uh, it sucks that we put the like acacia pods in one end, like in the blow end, put it in reverse. Right. It sucks through for the little impeller, breaks it all up, goes into a bucket with a bag over the top, and separates the seed out. Fantastic! And it was all all sort of invented by 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 need. Out of necessity. Out of necessity. Exactly. So yeah. so it's been a it's been a terrific season um, this year. We've managed to collect all that we needed to get. With the last little bits and pieces now are the aquatic plants. They're the ones that are typically last. So. The, all the, the rushes and sedges that grow in the, in, the, in the wetlands. So they're the last little bit to get them in. Okay. And I, I feel at this time of the year much more assured that, you know, we've got that material in the bank for our future growing. Yes. So it's been, that's been highly successful. A lot of other projects are around... I mean, there's lots of development going on around Melbourne and there's plenty of activity around um, urban developments where there's constructed wetlands being, being installed. We did a, a really big successful one up in Rockbank, uh, you'll see all those those big urban sprawl neighbourhoods out there. Um, but it's really reassuring to know that amongst that, you've got these well-designed, constructed and installed constructed wetlands mm. that are going to treat all the, the water that runs out of those mm. and create great amenity, clean the water up before it discharges into local streams. Mm. Uh, this one in particular was we planted it. Must have been around about Christmas. So we we plant in we plant into standing water. So there's you know, and the water can be from the sort of the shallow marsh to the deep marsh, somewhere between, I don't know, 20 centimetres to 50 centimetres deep. 
and the plants we're planting are quite significant. We, we grow them to a, a large size so they can be robust in that environment. But once they get in the ground, they race away. Mm. And, you know, six weeks later, they were starting to connect together from spacings that are, that are you know, a metre, metre apart. Mm. They're starting to connect, grow together. And in one year, that wetland will be completely closed out and you get all of that, that um, biofiltration effect of, of the, the, the plants, that, that bioactivity in the wetlands. In so a wetland that's only one year old. What sort of plants do you use? Are they reeds? Yeah, so these are things... Um, they're plants like, and they're, oh, I'm going to give you all the botanical names. Yeah, so sure, absolutely. They're, so they're baumias, machinoplectus, cladiums. These are, they, I mean, like I came in from an ornamental background and came into this, into this nursery and thought they were all like green reeds, they yeah. like green yes. grasses. <laughs> but they all have different, um, different capacities and different growth rates and they'll grow in different benches or, or areas in the, in the, in the um, constructed wetland. And yeah, so they're basically, they're, they're wetland plants. You, yes. The, You'll often drive past a, a stand of water and you'll see, you'll see, you might see Phragmites, which is the sort of, you know, feathery, grassy looking one. You might see Typha is around a bit as well. We don't plant Typha, but it is one of those things that's the Kambungi with the, with the big sort of sausage on top. Yes. We don't plant that one, but that exists in, in wetland spaces. But we're trying to replace it with these Baumeas, Cladiums, Bulbachinus. These are the things that were, that were part of the wetland landscape, mm. um, of Melbourne, of Australia. In fact, many, many of these plants are, International, they're ubiquitous plants. You'll find the same aquatic species across the whole world. They're spread by birds. They're, you know, wetlands are a pretty common environment across the world. Um, but we're just giving these wetlands this kickstart, putting these plants in there. They're incredibly vigorous over the summer, mm. so they get this wonderful close-out effect, and you get these functioning wetlands in a really quick mm. amount of time, which mm. is really gratifying to see, actually. Oh, absolutely. But, I mean, uh, I know that uh, Australian ecosystems often take on very large projects, so you're not just um, uh, reinvigorating wetland areas, but, but you're creating recreational areas for the community. Yeah. You're, you're, you're turning in what was once wasteland into something absolutely fantastic. It's bringing in all that bird life. Yeah. And it, it, well, I think the Australian Ecosystems, well, for the listeners out there that don't know, Australian Ecosystems is a business that's been running for 20 years, started off called Wetland Ecosystems and was really just doing what we've just been talking about, yes. just, just, the, just, the wetland. The, just the wetland component. We now do the wetland, we do the ephemeral areas around it, so that's the, the margin of the wetland. We even now go up and do the fully constructed landscape. So we're actually doing works with the rail projects, so around rail stations, we're doing some of the road projects. So it's, it's not just the wetlands, we're mm. all those. So we're basically creating that, that seed bank that we pull out of the wild is going back into urban environments to create that biodiversity in around where people live. So new suburban developments or new industrial developments, bringing back some, some of those indigenous species and then the life that comes past beyond that as well. So mm. we're cleaning the water as well as providing habitat and landscape amenity for people to, mm. to, to, to live and breathe in. Mm. And, of course, as nursery general manager, you have to propagate all these seeds that come in. Yes. It's a, well, it's a challenge. There's, there's a lot of plants to do. We, we, do, about, oh, we do about 2 million plants a year uh, in, in, a, in tube format or right. in a, a large 600cc cubic centimetre format for the wetland plants. Yes, there's a lot to do. And the season, you know, it's, it, it's pretty small sometimes. Like we're coming to the end of the season now. We're coming into winter. Plants don't grow very well over the winter. Mm. So, but this time of the year we move into our terrestrial planting jobs. You know, once we've had a bit of rain, we can plant into the, into the drier areas. 
Some is great for planting aquatics and planting in water where, they, where there is water because they love it. Yes. Um, you know, ideal, in an ideal world, that would be how the, how, the, how the thing would operate. But often we're having to do a bit of both at both times. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. It's a lot yeah, of so work. Yes, there's a lot going on. How, yeah. how many people are working in the nursery? Uh, we've got eight permanent staff at the moment, um, but we also have another eight temporary staff at the moment while I'm trying to maximise the season before the, before the light runs out. No, so, fair enough. So before, before, the, before the days really start to shorten, yes. I'm trying to get as many plants on the ground as I possibly can. Yes. And, and, and generally on average, um, how long would one of these projects take from sort of concept it, to... Yeah, it depends. So, so we, get, we get the job, we'll get a job from the landscape architect, so it'll be out to tender. Um, we'll then price it when we win the job. Depending on the size of the project, some some of the some projects we can will knock off in a couple of months, um, but other projects where there's a lot more work to do with is that we've got a whole uh, construction team that are, that are doing all the preparation and the the mulching, the jute matting, and the and the the landscape shaping. It can take some of these projects can take a year or more. Mm. So it's it's a big diversity. Mm. Do you have to also um, run community um, consultation? We uh, don't so or much is do that. that happens That's back all happened before. With the we, yeah, so we we come in at the end of that. We're, we're we're not involved so much in the design phase. Right. We're more in the implementation yep. phase. So once we get it, it's it's signed off. All the all the you know what you're dealing with. Yeah, You've got it the comes plan. as a, it comes as a plan. Right, and, and it's basically just roll that out. Work with the civil team that'll be doing all the land the, the earthworks, and then come in on the back of that to to do all the all the beautification, and then a maintenance period beyond that too. So we have a we have a nursery division who grow the plants. We have a construction division or a, a site division that do all the planting and all the works. And then we have a maintenance division that then, for the two, usually about a two-year period, uh, will then look after that to make sure it establishes so it can be handed back to whoever the landholder is, whether it be a council or whether it be a local, yeah, whoever whoever's commissioned it in the first place. Mm, mm. So it's, yeah... The whole process, in that sense, can take many years oh, because yes. you've got the maintenance all Absolutely. the way through to make sure it works. Absolutely. Yeah. And do the architects um, try and stipulate um, any particular species of plants or they leave that totally oh, no, up that's, to you? That, that, they're very prescriptive. They so, are, aren't yeah, they? Oh, yes, it's very prescriptive. And they'll be... Well, see, see with, the, with the wetlands in particular, um, there is a... a design manual set by Melbourne Water. Okay. So, which, was, which was updated last year, actually which specifies these species will be used in this particular area of a, of a, of a wetland. So you'll have, you'll have an ephemeral batter, they call it, list of species, might be 20 long. Then you'll have the shallow marsh, might be 10 species in that. Yep. So they, they've got a formula to work off, okay. and we know what they are, so we know what we're going to go and collect, so right. we've got that in the seed bank. Right. And occasionally you'll get the odd thing that's a bit hard to track down, and we have to have a bit of discussion around the plant lists, but no, they're pretty prescriptive, and they're... Pretty standard species because of that design manual. Okay. Yeah. And you said a lot of the species are found virtually worldwide, so it's it's not that you're having to deal with with um, um, a very narrow range of indigenous plants that are hard to track down Look, the that, seed. Or that's different for for different jobs. Yep. Wetland plants. I mean, we still collect all of our seed based on four bioregions across Greater Melbourne, so southeast Yarra the basalt plains and down to Torquay, mm-hmm. the Bellarine and Geelong area. Yep. And we collect that. We record all that information in our seed collect so that it's there for anyone who wants to check it through. So if we get a job that specifies must be from a particular region, we can 
in most cases, we can supply that because we've got that already in our seed bank. Mm. Um, and, yeah, some clients will be very particular about wanting it only from their region. And, and provenance issues are uh, absolutely relevant for Indigenous okay. reveg, even, yes, even yes. in a massively disturbed landscape like the Greater Melbourne area is. It's it's ideal if you can get something that's relatively close or at least from an analogous climate, like it's from the same soil type mm. or, mm. you know, it might not necessarily... Yeah, provenance is not necessarily just a a circle around where a plant might originally come from, like, you know, a 5K radius or something. Yeah, yeah. Because there's all sorts of other factors of, of rain shadows and soil type and and how the plants disperse that influence that. So, if, you know, for instance... Uh, a Melaleuca, a Melaleuca ericafolia is a good example. It will often grow in a creek line, but it'll probably be only one or two genetic individuals that occupy acres of mm. territory because they, they grow by running underground. So there's, you know, if collecting seed from that and then replanting it doesn't necessarily... You, you're going to have a situation where the, bi- the biodiversity doesn't matter as much because it's already in the landscape yes. as a clone. Yes, yes. So... Yeah, oh, we could go on forever about yeah, yeah, it's, it's a no, vast it's, topic. It's, it's the vast topic. Yeah. But, it, but, yeah. but I guess at the heart of it is that mm. we collect our, record everywhere the seed comes from so that it can be traced back if need be. Uh, and that at times we will be, you know, a, a client may not be so fussy, so we'll, we'll use a bit of a, a mixture. Mm-hmm. In fact, there is some logic around and there is increasing um, thinking to out provenance and go further afield to reduce a bottleneck or to get rid of a bottleneck. If, you, if you've got a small population of indigenous plants in a tiny little pocket that are isolated from everywhere, they're now a massive... That's a, that's a fragment of what was of a, a, a broader dynamic landscape. Mm. And if you just only collect from that and keep planting there, you're actually reducing the vigour. That's yeah. right, that's right. And, and, of course, it's the same as what we, we say with our, our suburban gardens, have, have diversity, because if, if one particular um, species of plant gets hit by a disease, which they're more prone to do if you don't mm. have that diversity, mm. then, then you're in trouble. Well, I know that in my own garden. And, yes. and my garden's a mixture of, of indigenous native plants as well as a lot of exotic plants. Yes. And I'm on tank water. So when it doesn't rain for 60 days, mm. there's a selection process yeah, going on. There is. You know, so I, with that diversity, I can pick, oh, they're good ones, I'll keep them. Yes, well, that one I lost because exactly. I couldn't, because exactly. it, it wouldn't survive in those extreme events. This yep. is, this, I'm really interested in this. I spent many years in nature conservation. Okay. And um, I remember, uh, and, and been involved with seed collection, um, actually through my brother who runs a seed <laughs> Um, native seed business, that's another story. But I remember being at a Greening Australia seed conference where a lot of these issues around provenance and genetic diversity, this is, this is in the early 2000s, everyone was very confused. Mm. Some oh, people, they still some are. Some think. people yeah. were very fanatical about yes. the sort of the yeah. distance from the project kind of idea. And there was an actual geneticist from Canberra, I've forgotten his name, who gave a talk. And I came up, went up to him uh, later and I said, listen, we're all going mad with this issue, you know, because do we collect very locally or do we think of soil type? And I said, just give me the rule of thumb, even if you can't put it in writing. What's more dangerous, inbreeding or outbreeding? And he just said, well, inbreeding, mm. in the end. Mm. And so, it is yeah. a pragmatic thing. It's yeah, like yeah, we're that's dealing, right. We're not dealing with an undisturbed landscape. We're dealing with a massively right, yeah. disturbed landscape yeah. that has all those, those issues across it. But it's become a lot more sophisticated. The work you're doing is amazing in that area, I have to say. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's exciting projects to be, uh, to be involved in. I think, you know, we're, it's gratifying to see. We, well, last year, Australian Ecosystems won the Landscape Victoria Landscape of the Year for a big project. I know. Which was fantastic. Which, yeah, it's, it's 
an aesthetic amenity, but it's also strong biodiversity mm. and and water conservation sort of mm. it's it's, it's um, it the, ticks the all pack. the boxes yeah. it definitely well, it did, does yeah, <laughs> yeah well. <laughs> well one of the judges for that a good friend of mine Henrik Van Leeuwen rang me after he'd been down there he just said you have got to go see this project he said it's just mind-blowing so yeah. it's a very good report yeah, <laughs> yeah. that was yeah. gratifying yeah. yeah yeah Chris let's get yeah. back to you sure what projects are you working on now I mean you, yeah. you're still obviously doing your sweet potatoes sure but you well, must be working on a huge range yeah, well, of things. Yeah, there's, there's a range of species that I'm, I'm continuing to grow. Um, but I think I'm at the moment, I'm, in terms of engagement projects, I'm most excited by uh, the project I'm doing with, the, uh, with some student volunteers at the YMCA at their aquatic and recreation centres. So okay. one of my students, Kit Duncan-Jones, um, uh, was a poolie, pool attendant at Northcote. And um, he said to me, I'd like to create a, a kitchen garden at the pool there. And I thought, well, that's a great idea. You know, and he said, we do have a cafe, and I, I gave him some advice, and he went ahead and did this great plan and created this thing. And then, um, and I swim there, so I thought, you know, okay. that was a nice, nice yeah, fit. keep an eye on it. Even, even though I didn't even look at it for months, I have to confess, but <laughs> too busy. But then um, I was listening to Radio National, and they gave a big talk, they sort of were talking about um, the cafe and how the, at the Northcote Pool, it's the first recreation centre cafe in Australia, I believe, to actually take, get rid of soft drinks, no more junk food. This is a bit tragic for some people. No more chlorine and hot chips on a summer's day, right? <laughs> um, and I thought, that's incredible. And they talked a lot about the kitchen garden. So I, I, I contacted Kit and I said... Well, you had to go and have a look, I didn't said, you? I said, you didn't tell me it was, you know, famous, it was famous right? <laughs> um, so cut a long story short, what, what's happened is that the YMCA run, uh, I think it's 60 aquatic and leisure centres across Victoria. It's sort of a bit of an untold story. I think it's a very old charity. They keep their kind of work a little bit hidden in a sense. They don't widely promote the fact that they're managing all these centres okay. on behalf of councils on yes, public right. land. Right. Um, and that they have a very have a policy of, you know, subsidising the ones that aren't performing too well with the ones that are doing well. So it's a genuine sort of community uh, effort to promote community health. Mm. What ha- What's happened is they've um, now subscribing to the Victorian State Government Healthy Choices Policy, which a lot of sporting clubs and recreation centres are meant to be following which says we've got to start at the centre where people are gathering and trying to be healthy like swimming and using the gym the food in the cafe or kiosk should Mm. reflect that Mm. so um, this this has sort of really inspired me because I think well here's an opportunity to get um, you know good quality urban agriculture students with the sort of skills that I'm trying to teach out to let's say there's 60 centres to help them do kitchen gardens really well or food gardens well so gardens that connect to the kitchens because the coordinating that is quite difficult when you think about it it's all these things we've already talked about what do people really want to eat what are the skills of the cooks or the chefs what what material do they like to work with yes what stuff is genuinely nutritious how do you make sure the garden looks fantastic as well because how do you have a continuity of supply across seasons exactly, exactly. All, the, all those issues around seasonality and all the rest of it so what we're doing now is we've expanded the kitchen garden at Northcote. We're working on it. We, we've been taking these issues very seriously. So I have a, uh, we have a little committee, which is at this stage just Burnley students who are locals, trying to work out um, you know, what the next crops will be, what the kitchen actually wants. Um, but more importantly, we're going to try and expand this to other centres. So because of my connection to Dandenong, um, one of the, the centre manager there, um, <coughs> excuse me, I've already been out on site, and the Oasis Centre in Dandenong is remarkable. It's a gigantic centre with an indoor 50-meter pool, pool, a lot of air land. Mm. Um, 
and they'd like to connect people more to the outside area. And because Dandenong's the most ethnically diverse municipality in Victoria, second most in Australia, the idea is to create uh, a garden that has a lot of interaction from people in Dandenong that perhaps reflects a lot of the plants that I'm interested in, but also has quote-unquote normal veggies as well, yes. right? <laughs> um, and uh, to... Because gradually the YMCA uh, cafes and kiosks are phasing out. In fact, they might all be done now, no more junk food. Right. So that also would have a relationship to their kitchen. But it would actually... The idea for this, at the Dandenong one, this is very early days at this point, is to think of uh, more programs that involve people. Because Dandenong also has high unemployment, um, you know, people who are socially disadvantaged, and the centre there has already has a, has a, a, a sort of very cheap membership rate for people who are unemployed. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is this idea of, of aquatic and recreation centres being com- more community hubs, do a, do a range of things. Right. Um, and... From a very pragmatic horticultural point of view, the great thing about aquatic centres is while they all have conservation water plans, and water is obviously a massive issue if you're yes. running a swimming pool, water is not that kind of stress that you have sometimes in a community garden situation where you know, it, you're a small group and you're worrying about the cost of using potable water and then you think, oh, we have to get a tank in and that, that could cost thousands of dollars as well. That's right. In other words, the that's... The water part, I think, is so essential to doing food growing well, as Rosie will attest with fair share. Mm. Um, as I can attest in my backyard. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And we can all attest. <laughs> we can. We're all agreed. <laughs> um, so to have that almost covered immediately is really good. So yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's a, a big project for me at the moment, trying to get my head around that. Um, and also because I, I, have, I call it my non-secret agenda, which is to get people to take horticulture graduates seriously and get, get graduates' jobs. So I think the more the, the set of skills you need to be a good gardener, particularly around growing food, it's, um, because especially if you're really talking about seriously producing crops, as Fair Shed does, then I'd like people to think, yes, we would be employing a good graduate from a horticulture program. Mm. I think that's really essential. I think... That the thing about gardening and horticulture is this is obviously genuinely grassroots and people have a go and all that, but there's just a point at which you need someone who's been trained sufficiently to get to sort out some of these issues I'm talking about. Yes, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I'm very impressed. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, I yeah, am. but I mean, I think it is. I think urban agriculture in Melbourne in the last ten years, you know, the whole idea of growing food in cities and and, you know, and, and and diggers that Tim used to work for have had a big part in really just getting generating excitement about growing different crops and, mm. and and being into growing food. It has sort of got to the next level. It's getting there anyway. You know, there's so many organisations that there's three thousand acres doing great work across the city. There, you know, there's. Um, this fair share's contribution is huge just by having a big, large, visible project at Victoria Park mm. or in Abbotsford that it's now, um, you know, it is this, this idea of joining the dots. So if you're just going to grow food, well, how does that link to nutrition? How does that link to the, the huge the ethnic diversity of this city? Yes. Um, what's the difference between having kind of allotment-style community gardens where people just kind of – it's recreational in a sense and, and producing food versus the – the bigger scale projects or having community gardens that are more communal, mm. not necessarily just plot based. So there's yes. all this thinking going on about what's what's the next level and even how um, growing food in cities connects to, you know, selling, their entrepreneurial activities. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and I think too, and this is a bit of a connection to the Bagley farm here, to getting people thinking about 
well, where do most of our veggies come from anyway? Um, getting people to think about the reality that we still have market gardens in and around Melbourne that produce a, a huge percentage of our vegetables. Mm. That I think it's in, with broccoli, for example, it's 90% comes from in and around Melbourne. Mm. So that we actually have all broccoli in in this city is low food miles, for example. Mm. So just this general awareness of food and linking it to the, the growing, to nutrition, to, to bigger public health issues, I think is... Um, I'm very optimistic at the moment. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, have, have you done much work with tying this in with the the chefing side of the whole thing? That because because out of mm. all of this, as as well as having to have at least someone who's yeah. trained horticulturally, yeah. Um, you need you need someone who knows what they're doing in the kitchen, and who believes in 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 the whole concept of of, of good and nutrition and, uh, and fresh. Well, it's interesting. I mean, a, a, an example, I suppose, is with fair share at the moment, whereas I'm a massive fan of, of the potential of taro as a home crop in Melbourne. Right. I don't know if I talked about that last <laughs> time. Um, and that's very popular with lots of communities. And um, there's different types, and, and one type needs more preparation than the other. And so I've, I've been commissioned by, uh, by Susie Scott at fair share to come down to the kitchen in Abbotsford because we're growing some taro at Abbotsford this year. Right. And apparently, look, I haven't been down for a while. It's looking lush, apparently, with giant elephant ears. Again, aesthetically magnificent. Yes. Quite much more productive in Melbourne than people realise. So um, I've got 100 kilos brewing away in my garden at the moment. That's my estimate. Um, but... I have to go down there and say to the to the chefs and cooks, okay, this is how you prepare it. Mm. And I, I feel like I'm going to have to be trying to convince them. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure we've uh, we've had too much tarot through the no. kitchen actually. So um, I'm sure they'll be very willing to listen yeah. and, and learn from you. Oh Chris. yeah, I mean, no, I, I'm not. I'm a I'm a good, solid, average home cook, but I, I shall just be explaining the basics. Um, but Pam, I guess another interesting... I, I was just yeah, wondering yeah, sure. if maybe you've tied yeah. into somewhere yeah. like William Anglis, oh, for instance. Well, there you go. Perfect segue. Yes. So we had the Urban Ag Forum uh, at William Anglis last month, okay. run by uh, Nick Rose and his team at Sustain. And uh, Miranda Sharp from Melbourne Farmers Market oh, yes. was doing the, with the meal there, uh, the big uh, dinner for 150 or 200 people. And... And, and with the students there, and they did such a fantastic job. But I was—I felt actually quite privileged to provide the salad ingredients. And you know, Miranda, as you know, is wildly enthusiastic. Oh, she's, she's amazing. And so she—she she, um, because there's a, the Alfington Food Hub project is taking off now on the site of the old Metro trees. Um, talk about uh, links and you know yes. everything's connected. And so anyway, my, my garden's near there. Miranda came and have a came and have a, a look. And uh, she was amazed by the diversity of leafy things that I grow. Okay. And she sort of said as a joke, oh, I'm sure you're growing Kangkong. And I went, oh, yeah, just over here, one metre. And she went, what? Like, like Kangkong being aquatic water spinach. Yes. So to come along, long story short, uh, with uh, Kieran Dickerson, her sort of right-hand person, we gathered a whole bunch of these leafy things from my place and from Burnley, to, and Miranda created this very simple salad of things like with cranberry hibiscus, for example, which okay. is that lemony... Um, a cranberry coloured hibiscus. Anyway, it was a huge hit. A lot of people were coming up to me saying, Well, how can I get some of this? Uh, what is it? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of those people were, were cooks or chefs or, or, or people who, um, uh, you know, are running uh, social enterprises where one of the outcomes is training, let's say, uh, like the organisation Street, for example. Yes, the, yes. Um, they do an amazing job. Yeah, with Beck, with Beck Scott. Mm. Trying to say, well, how, you know, because novelty sells. It really does. 
And I mean, that's something I've noticed too, as younger people are trying to get into uh, market gardening now. I, I, and honestly, I think a few years ago when I when sort of young farmer um, movement kicked off, I was a little bit pessimistic. I thought, wow, the average age of an Australian farmer is 60. How are you going to get land, the capital cost of land? And now I'm, I've, I've swung the other way because what I've seen is it's still early days that the just the food culture in Melbourne means that people are willing to try new stuff. That's a huge advantage. Mm. So if you're growing, you know, I mean, even the sales of sort of forage weeds is quite significant for some yes. growers, right? Yes. So if you can um, introduce these new species or cultivars and, and show how you can grow them well, then there will be a – there should be demand. It is a sort of sales job you have to do. And then, as you're suggesting, if you can link that to – if you can, if you know what the nutrition is – if you know that the flavours and tastes are good, um, then you're helping to diversify that market. Mm. Um, so anyway, uh, Miranda very generously just uh, has offered Burn- uh, Burnley students um, the chance to grow some of these things and actually have a stall at a farmer's market sometimes. Oh, so I'm very excited by that. Yes. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Mm. So we have a few uh, queries that have come in on the outside line we must get to. Um, Firstly, uh, we have a, a listener in East Melbourne. Um, she has a problem with her pot plants. She waters carefully, but the plants look sick, weak roots, and the soil looks wet. Pots sit on bricks. Mm. Any ideas for solving her problem? That's a bit of a tough one, given we don't know what the plants are. No, we don't, which is why I really my, my appreciate first, people my, that are prepared to speak online. We can query them yeah. about... My, my first thought would be... Are they growing in either pots full of potting media or soil? There's always that. Um, and it hasn't been replaced is what yeah, I'm thinking. Is, so is, it's is, has it Because pot, potting media will compact over time. Mm. It breaks down, you know, no nutrients. So yeah. it, it, need, it, needs, you know, it either needs re, re, rejuvenating or it's going to need some liquid feeding or something to get those pot plants going. Because remember, that's a pretty restrict, restricted root zone. Um, well, I'm thinking it might be repelling the water. Yeah. And although the, the the pots might look like they're draining, it's all running down the sides of the pots and it's not getting to the roots of the plants. That's my which, thought. Which means that the, the potting media itself is probably old and spent. Yes, and, and the bricks are going to be quite a hot surface as well. So I would imagine if they're black plastic pots, they're going to have dried out fairly, fairly quickly. The, I guess you can always mm. stick your finger in, not on the margin, but in the middle of the pot, and just and test. Is there? Is, is there, it down? You know, you've got to go down more yes. than just the top couple of centimetres. You've got to go down a good inch or two. Yep. If it's dry in there, then you haven't been watering enough, mm. especially when it's been so dry and hot and windy. Yes. Yeah, I, I'd, I agree with Tim, and I'd even be more uh, radical and toss the plant out and have a good look at it, unless it's... I mean, just to sort of see whether it's either too dry... Just tip one out completely. Tip one out completely. Have a really good and look. And see whether you might have in it... Because I can't quite read that. Is that saying it's, they're indoor plants or no, they're outdoors? No, 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 they're outdoors. Oh, they're outdoors. So, um, yeah, I, I grow a few things in, in large pots or uh, outdoors. And, of course, what happens can happen is that we forget that while growing, uh, let's say getting your chilies growing in a black pot in spring into early summer is good because it warms up very That's quickly. Right. That's completely unnatural root environment for oh, yes. most plants, right? If you're on a warm day exposed to the sun, the temperature in there is getting, you know, it must exceed over 40 degrees mm. anyway, it's very hot um, but you can still overwater, so it'd be worth taking one out oh, I can take you see and the soil looks wet actually is that what I see yes, I, yes. the soil my, looks I, wet. wet so maybe it, the saturated layer is very high that in fact yeah, as Tim's saying that the potting mix has been um, starting to decompose and um, 
it's actually just too wet. So, I mean, the drainage holes could be blocked. They could be sitting too flat on the bricks um, and and there's no gravel or anything in the base of the pot. I I agree with you. I think she really needs to take one of the plants out and really look Mm. and see what's going on. But there's there's a few different reasons why it could be happening. It's interesting. um, This is going to sound like an obscure connection, but bear with me. (laughs) I've been reading Charles Darwin's last book on earthworms. This was the radical breakthrough in our understanding of worms. Okay. This is where the worm obsession all comes from. Right. And he points out in 1880, of course, because he had lots of worms in pots experimenting on what they eat. Yes. And, of course, we all know this. Any decent nurseryman, nursery person knows you've got to keep worms out of those pots mm-hmm. because they, they get in there and start munching oh, yeah. it all, right? Exactly. Every, everything living. And, and yeah. so um, perhaps the, the, these – I know they're on bricks, but perhaps at some point they were on the ground and, and worms got in and started chomping away. Mm. And I, I, on that, I mean – um, but again, people forget that worms actually eat stuff. <laughs> right, seriously. <laughs> That's well, right. a proper, a proper exactly. worm farm yeah, consumes exactly. a huge That's amount right. of biomass. Exactly. So if they're, if they're in your pot and they're eating all that uh, semi-rotted pine bark, wow. And yes. the roots too, exactly, yes. and even the plants. Anyway. So I reckon if the yeah. plant's pretty sick, I'd knock one or two out and have a good dig around and see exactly. what's going on. Yeah, yeah. And it might be, might be time for some drastic action, which is repot them in fresh exactly. media. Exactly. Yep. yep. Okay. Uh, now, Kim from Reservoir, uh, Chris, would really yes. like you to give more details on how anyone could grow sweet potato in their own backyards. Now, he wants specifics on sprouting, right. cuttings, taking care. Absolutely fair enough. Yeah. So, um, in if if you have the luxury of bottom heat, meaning in something a, a, a small kit that allows you to warm a tray underneath, obviously, then that's fantastic. So, for what we do at the Burnley Nurseries, we get a shallow uh, seed raising tray, fill it with about halfway with mix, put the sweet potato on in there, lightly cover, even exposed is okay, and we just force the sweet potatoes to produce slips, right? In other words, stem or shoot material. So that's having a greenhouse, excuse me. <coughs> However, I've done it without uh, bottom heat, where you simply uh, wait for the sweet potatoes to, to sprout indoors, they'll even do it, right? Just even um, sitting in the open air in a dry cupboard, you'll eventually get shoots, or... You do the old uh, classic primary school thing, chicken skewers. Yes. Right? You have to know the front and the Which is bo- top, the top and the bottom. bottom. Yeah. <laughs> Proximal and distal. Yes. Um, and you hang, suspend them in water, and then the roots will come out and the shoots will appear. Then you gently, and, and they, as Tim said right from the start, you'll have masses of shoots, mm. right, eventually. Every one of those is a potential sweet potato plant. So you you just pull them off, and you can pull them off when they're, Tiny, maybe that's a. I wouldn't recommend that for everyone. Let them get fairly let them big, get a bit bigger. bigger. I think. But you, it's amazing how even the tiniest portion of material will grow. Anyway, so you take your your uh, your slip, pull it off, pot it up, let it get a few roots, then plant out in the garden. So you can start uh, planting sweet potatoes as early as the famous cup day if you want to they'll often it's cool the soil's still quite cool and cold they'll sometimes sit there doing nothing for a while but let's say you just want to get them in the ground yep so if it's a warm november definitely but really from late november to depending on the variety to as late as late december you can then put them in the ground in a very as sunny position as possible Mm. yeah so it's all that so you can, there's loads of stuff on the internet. Just type in, uh, search for, you know, forcing sweet potato slips, um, sweet potato cuttings. Yeah, yes. there's a lot of stuff there. Okay. I, 
I mean, one trick I did one year which worked was was I put uh, the suspended sweet potato, uh, you know, outdoors, but with a fish tank over the top, and then a second fish tank over the top of that. <laughs> right. It looked a bit bizarre. In other words, just maximising the heat. Yes, right. Of the sunny days in spring, and that that was faster than uh, putting it on the windowsill. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so hang on, I'm just picturing that. No, not, so the fish tank sits it's upside down. Yes. Yeah, okay. Right. And what, so you like had a, cloche, a bigger one that like a cloche exactly. Okay. Yeah, like there an, you go. Like a mad cloche. Yes. Yeah. A double a layered mad cloche. Double layered mad cloche. Yeah. <laughs> Great. You should patent that. Yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah. once you've got your slips yeah. in the ground. Yep. Care, general care oh, and maintenance. Wow, they're they're pretty easy. Mm. Um, so what happens How is how much water, for instance? Yeah, I, I like to say as much as a tomato. Okay. Right? They're, they're not. Um, they don't. It doesn't have to be. It's not excessive or anything. It's not, not especially uh, needy when it comes to water. But I think during the establishment phase, definitely don't hold back. Yes. What what tends because I've read a lot of the sort of commercial agronomic literature on sweet potatoes. So establishment is very important. Mm. That's the trigger for producing the tuber later in the season. And then what you'll find is, and it's interesting when I have, um, you know, connected to people who are growing for the first time, they say, oh, they're very slow. And then all of a sudden, boom. Bang. <laughs> once, you get to Jan- once January kicks off, then they suddenly sprawl and they become this awesome ground cover. Mm. Okay. So one of the reasons, again, they're quite popular with commercial growers is because the weeding requirements just suddenly plummet. Okay. So, you know, mulching will solve that problem. But they just become a, a closed canopy of, of these leaves and nothing really gets through them. Right. And then, then they're actually very. Uh, I keep the water up to them, but um, but I know that you, you can taper off. They're actually. In fact, I had a student um, who grew some on, on a nature strip she'd converted, and I lived nearby, and I went past a couple of times and was like, you know, tisk tisk, oh, look at them wilting. That's terrible. And, and then in the and then so she did these intermittent waters. And it was an enormous harvest, right? So, so even when they're stressed, so that wilting in but, those hot days is not such an issue. Well, I, I mean, you want to keep the water up. You, you want to avoid that. I would, think so. Which you've got a better yield. Great, if, that great point. If yeah, you have yeah, the, that's right. Away. I mean, it's what I've noticed is where in the most, it's an obvious point in the most thoroughly prepared beds that I have at home. The sweet potatoes won't wilt, but the mm. others that are in a slightly compacted or shallower soil yeah. will wilt like crazy. That's the sort of normal thing you expect. But, yeah, and just on that, how functional they are in terms of weed suppression, um, that's what makes them a great... That's why there are, there are lots of ornamental types as yeah. well. There's some um, beautiful purple coloured and sort of variegated foliage, which are purely ornamental. Yeah. Do they produce a tuber? They, some do um, and some don't. Mm. Yeah. So that's a bit variable. Mm-hmm. But I know for a fact, I think I read on a forum somewhere, the gardeners in Central Park, New York, because they grow a lot of sweet potatoes as ornamentals in New York, believe okay. it or not, and they were discussing how they take the sweet potatoes home at the end of uh, okay. end of autumn in uh, Manhattan. So, hmm. And and how does the home gardener know when to harvest? I, I have, you know, I think people like their little milestone dates. It used to be Cup Day for tomatoes in That's Melbourne. That's right. I know increasingly, you can get away with Grand Final Day, I sort of think. <laughs> uh, so I say Anzac Day for sweet potatoes. All right. Is it, is the, I mean, there's some big ones swelling at the moment, I've noticed. So there's, I've actually been bandicooting a few out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's good, late April. And that, and that worked well at Fair Share last year. We, we did a, a trial harvest of a few plants, I think, in early April, and that was looking really good. But it was amazing how by putting off the harvest until early May, even though a very small percentage had started to rot in the wet, the beds that were a bit overly wet, um, they'd actually got bigger. Okay. So, so 
Now, for a commercial grower, this is what's interesting in terms of uh, you know the war on waste or managing food waste. Football-sized sweet potatoes freak people out in markets, right? <laughs> it's so a big meal. It, it, it's a lot. I grew we, I grew one last year that was four and a half kilos. It was oh, just goodness. ridiculous. You need to enter it in the local agriculture. Yeah, probably. Yeah. But blue the on great it. thing for a kitchen like the what Fairshare have, where it's all about the staples and pumping yeah. out these amazing meals, they don't lose. They're, they're still delicious when they're football-sized. Yeah. Right. Right. So. Your, so they don't go guys, woody or... They're not no. there. In the middle I, I would have thought they might have gone yeah. a bit they, woody. They but don't seem to. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so Harp, give them three or four months. There's a, there's a bush type, an orange one called a, a, a Vangeline, because it's developed in the... Sorry, apologies to people from the deep south of America. So a, a Vangeline is a, a very quick growing one. So three months and you've got orange sweet potatoes. Yeah, and it's not as sprawling. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, the, the, but largely I think three to four months is good. Yes. Yeah. Excellent. Mm. Fantastic. Okay. Um, we're going to go to, we have a caller here. We'll go to Ken in Sunshine. Good morning, Ken. Good morning. Look, I forgot to tell you a little story which, which won't take too long over the park. Right. What we did, and I think it's very important, we took over a council meeting. We had about, I'd say about 800 people in the council chambers. They were down in the bottom. Yep. And they were up in the council chambers and we completely took over the meeting. We changed it and they had to disband the council meeting and the whole press was there and that's what we did and I think that's what turned the whole thing. So I forgot to tell you that yesterday, uh, last, okay. last Sunday. Yes. And I thought I should tell you. Oh, good on you. Good on you, yes. We're, we're actually getting a lot of publicity at the moment, lots of volunteers because they're, they're dealing with each... Um, each reserve at a separate meeting. Isn't that just... Well, what I do... So I, they've divided. I, they, they were hoping that that, that you yep. know, would, would bring an end to us. But uh, we've, got, we've got volunteers left, right and centre that are turning up to every single one and we're getting lots of um, local uh, press. So, yeah, we're, 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 we're in there, Ken. And the thing is, if you, I, I think it's important to take over the council because you pay the rates, you pay their wages, yes, you exactly. pay the loss. Exactly. Anyway, power to you, and it's the only way to beat them. Good on you, Ken. Thank Good you on you. Thanks that. very much. Okay. Bye. Bye. Good luck. Thank you. Um, just for, for mm. the, the team here, um, I've been mentioning over the last couple of weeks, um, I live in Shire of Nillimbik, yep. and um, they are currently, the current council are trying to sell off 17 of our little block reserves which people use for recreation. Some of them have playground equipment in them, etc., etc. The council um, want the money so that they can fund other projects instead. And, of course, once those reserves have gone, they've gone. Their habitat, their, their leafy trees, mm. you know, we're shady. We're, we're, we're supposed to be on the edge of the... We're the, part of the green wedge. This is so yeah, important. Yeah. So one of my stu- the former students, Jazz Rhodes, is in, that, in your group, I think. Yes. I don't know if you've... So, she came in and we went through the, 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 you know, the council website, looked at all the parcels of land on yes. the map and, and you could see, it was obvious even from just an aerial desktop shot that some of these parcels connect other reserves. So they, they do. They, they, they're, they do. It's all about connectivity. Exactly. So even though some of them are, you know, by some standards low quality, whatever that means, right, they're still used. They're still, and, and I think particularly that connectivity issue, and mm. I think it's really... It's pretty full on when councils sort of try and wedge the community by saying, well, if you can't, if you, you know, 
if you want these nice things, we have to sell these nice things. You know, it's not... The council are just yeah. saying, look, they're vacant land. No one's using them, right. which is absolutely yeah. untrue. Right. And, and those, those, those reserves were left specifically when the housing went up around them, specifically yeah. for the purpose of giving some... Some shade, you know, some mm. some um, some habitat, some, some amenity, some yes. Land, yes. Yeah. and and for people to go in and sit and have a quiet time under a gum tree mm. or whatever. But I mean, they were in the planning, and we yeah, absolutely. And as I say, once they're gone, they're gone. Yeah. So oh. um, it's a fight. Public land, <laughs> it's, keep it. Yeah. It's it's my local fight at the moment. So yeah. Ken Ken um, mm. in sunshine went through the same thing um, about eighteen months right. ago, and they won. They've mm. got their, their park and it's and mm. it's there for perpetuity. So, um, yep. yes, but anyway, that's just to explain the background of, of that phone call. Okay, um, Anne from Northcote, um, I don't quite get that one as yet. Um, I will just mention quickly, Michael from Forest Hill, you wanted to know what the theme music is. Um, it's called The Floral Dance and the artist is Georges Zamfire. So um, I believe it is still um, available if you want to look for that one. All right. Um, we are running through until 9.15. We uh, have about just over 10 minutes if anyone would like to jump on the phones and give us a call. Uh, we do have in the studio this morning Tim Sansom, Dr Chris Williams and Rosemary Kelly. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, 94190155. Rosemary, let's get back to talking about um, fair share sure. and in particular you're very keen to get some more um, people to volunteer, particularly in the, in the Bagley uh, garden. At the Bagley the farm, farm because as I said before it's much larger than the other two gardens and therefore there's a lot more work that's, uh, that's needed. Perhaps not right now because it, we're going into a season starting to just quieten down but we will be... Uh, once sort of winter's passed, we will be wanting more volunteers down there. Um, we have it's in it's on Clayton Road in uh, Clayton South. Um, it's a large farm. It's um, uh, it, we're growing lots and lots of different vegetables down there. And last year it provided us. We last year we harvested 38 tonnes of fresh vegetables across the three gardens, and 30 tonnes came from the Bagley Farm. Wow. So it's a mm. it, it, it's a significant contributor to our kitchen. Um, we've got shifts there on a Monday, uh, in the mornings, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Saturday from 9 till 12. People can do a, a weekly or a fortnightly shift during the week. And Saturday morning is, is a monthly shift, once a month. Okay. So you know well so ahead of time. So that's not arduous. It's not arduous and you know ahead of time when you're on roster. Yes. So, uh, and, and obviously if you can't come in because you're not well, then, you know, we can we can arrange to sort of swap you around or whatever. Sure. Um, it's very communal. People, our People really enjoy gardening and uh, it attracts lots of people, people who love gardening and just find that that's, uh, that's a great thing to do. And, and the Abbotsford Gardens actually attracted people who are perhaps living in apartments, moved, moved into the inner city, lost their gardens because yes. they had to downsize. Uh, they miss their gardening and so they don't have a garden, their own garden to work out of, so they've put their hand up to help mm. at, the, uh, at the Victoria Park Garden, which, uh, which is interesting as well. Mm. Now, how, how do people contact you if they are interested? If they're interested, they should go to our website, which is www.fairshare.net.au. If they go to the volunteering tab, they can scroll down and there's a link there to an online registration form and they can fill out their details and put some little notes in there about what they're interested in. But they would, they would tick the box that says garden 
and I think there's also a little box there for Bagley Farm. They give us their address, then we'll we'll see that they live not that far away. Um, uh, they can also follow us on Facebook uh, at Fairshare, and also we're on Instagram, and we're fairly active social media people. Lucy Farmer, who's our communications person, makes sure that we're up there every day. Okay. Um, and the other thing, if people aren't able to volunteer and uh, but they would like to support us, then um, we would uh, love people to make a donation to us. We uh, we have a uh, in the gardens, for example, um, we need uh, six hundred dollars to provide us with a year's supply of fertilizer. Um, Three thousand dollars helps us to uh, get mulch to our gardens. Um, uh, our water bills, uh, quarterly water bills are $800. So, you know, there are certain costs. Although we've been very well supported in setting up the gardens, the ongoing funding of the gardens uh, is a cost that we need to um, find, we need to cover. And we don't get any ongoing government funding at Fair Share. We are reliant on donations for all that we do. And each year to run Fair Share in Melbourne is uh, is around $2 million. Mm. That's our, our operating costs. So uh, we are very well supported by a number of um, wonderful philanthropic groups and corporates and individuals. But we're also uh, very keen to get other people supporting us, both in, in terms of volunteering and also as donors. Mm. Now, you also mentioned that um, you run an information session. Uh, we run information sessions from time to time when we have an intake of kitchen volunteers mainly. Okay. Um, so we bring them into the kitchen, which is uh, in Abbotsford, um, about two k's away from the Victoria Park Garden in South Audley Street. We uh, we do run information sessions for people who are on our waiting list for the kitchen um, because we bring them in and we, we show them around, give them a tour, talk to them about what's required in the kitchen. Um, and we are running some very soon, but... The people that we're calling in for those have been on our wait list for about 12 months. So it's quite a long wait. They're very patient, mm. but they're very, very keen to come and help us. And, uh, and we're very grateful that we've got so much support from people. But I presume if someone filled out um, a form online or something, um, someone would at least get back to them fairly quickly. Uh, they'll get an, they'll get an, an automatic response. They'll be, their their uh, registration will, will be acknowledged. If they're interested in the Bagley Farm, we'll be in touch with them very soon because we are in need of more volunteers down at the Bagley Farm. Right. Definitely. But yes. anyone that fills out a, um, a, a form, they will go um, into your... Um, we, we go on file or something. Yeah, they're on they're on our database. We will we will keep in touch with them. We yes. our, our waiting list volunteers our volunteers on the waiting list should I say um, receive a monthly update from us about oh, what's good. going on at Fair Share. We sort of feel that they they're keen to join our community, so we want to make sure that they feel very welcome. No, so, that's great. So they'll get an update from yeah. us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And do you ever do you ever have an open day at, um, at any of the gardens? We have, yes. We've had um, we've had a number of well, we've had at least two, I think, at uh, at the Vic, Bar- Vic Park Abbotsford Garden. In fact, Chris was a guest speaker at was, at one yeah. last year. Yes, we do. We advertise those on uh, on our social media and on our website. I'm not sure I've, I know of any coming up, but when we do have one, which I'm sure we will then it would normally be at Abbotsford or the Bagley Farm and we would, uh, we would advertise it on our social media, on Facebook or Instagram. Uh, well, if you ever do have one coming up, by oh, all means, and, and shoot through 3CR. Through yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes. yes, yes. No, that would be great. Okay. Um, getting back to you, Chris, yeah. with, with your projects, you, you said you're, you're sort of working with, with young Burnley um, students at the yeah. moment. 
Is there any opportunity for for anyone who's interested just from the community to to be a part of any of your projects? I guess indirectly, but you know, once the you know, it would be if the, if students were helping uh, create the plant material that might go to fair share, then then definitely at the planting stage. But uh, truthfully, it's a bit hard at the at the on campus um, because there's so many students. Yes, still. of course. Yeah. Um, that would be that would be yeah that would be the next step I guess but um, at t- honestly it's a bit hard uh, at the propagation level mm. at the moment yeah mm. but actually that's that's a good thought I'll um, I'll try and work something out and and what about with the situation of of creating some of these kitchen gardens right. um, with YMCA and definitely the- then that's th- so what 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 we hope to do is really establish Northcote as a model and Kit's actually writing up a research project with me at the moment to sort of lay out what you would have to do to make it work and each centre probably will have a different flavour. Oh, of course. Then what we're hoping is that absolutely that different centres can create um, kitchen gardens and a relationship with their cafes based on local community volunteers. Mm. So yeah, watch this space. Yeah, yep. fantastic. Well again mm. if, um, if you ever need uh, any information to go out please just, just send it through to Thanks me. Thanks heaps Pam. Yeah, yep. Yep. okay. Can I just say one more thing, Pam? Sure, Rosie. For anyone who's interested, uh, who's been listening this morning, is interested in, uh, in in into getting some more insights into how we've been growing vegetables across our three gardens, we've actually developed a garden manual, which is also on our website at www.fairshare.net.au uh, forward slash kitchen gardens, and they can okay. download the kitchen the garden manual. Not the kitchen manual, the garden manual. Right. It's about 90 pages, I think. But oh, if gosh. you're really interested in how we have grown vegetables across the three gardens uh, and people want more information, then they can get it out of that garden manual. I'm sure Chris had something to do with that garden manual, did you, Chris? Uh, well, I think, I think, had some was, input? I think Susie and Kit wrote. So Kit, right, yeah, Kit Duncan pool, Jones is also And been. I think I just read through it and went, yeah, that's all great. <laughs> 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 no, it is. It's a fantastic document, yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah. Sorely, fantastic. sorely needed in yeah. a lot of community growing yeah. projects. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. We've... Do have one caller. We just might have time to uh, squeeze them in. We'll go to Pam in Coburg. Good morning, Pam. Good morning. Yes. Good morning, panel. Morning. I've I've got a question about uh, hawthorn hedges. I'm part of a heritage fruit group that work out at Petty's Orchard, and there's a bit of remnant hawthorn hedging, and we've been talking about wanting to revive that. But it's the sort of hawthorn we don't know what its name, but it's the sort that doesn't spread from seed. Um, so we're trying to work out how we go about propagating to build it up as a hedge again. Um, hi, Pam. Are you Pam? Are you the Pam, yes. I think? You yes, <laughs> I am Pam. You are Pam. <laughs> hi, Pam. How are you going? Um, I'm good, thanks. <laughs> yeah, good. Uh, so it doesn't produce fruit, in other words, so you can't propagate so from no, seed. No, it's sterile form. It produces fruit. Yeah. There's probably three different types of fruit that come on it, different colours and sort of sizes. There's look as though there's some distinct varieties, but it doesn't become weedy. So all that's left are the trees, a certain number of trees that are quite old. So they, these these are the famous hawthorns that are heritage listed because of the connection to the Heidelberg School of Painters, aren't they? Is that... I'm not sure about that. They're at Petty's Orchard. Yeah, yes. I think so. I mean, and they do strike from cuttings because that's the whole point. Do they? For hedges. Okay. Um, mm. Okay. As so hedges and hedge rows. That's, that's right. what Hawthorne was used was a, right. was a living fence. Yeah. Yeah. It was a living exactly. fence. Yes. Yeah. And then, but yeah. then a lot of them got away and you were getting them running into creeks and stream sides. Well, these don't seem to spread at mm. all. 
in fact, it's, you know, it's hard to keep... They have to be looked after to stay alive. But So you're saying we could do cuttings? I'm fairly confident. Yeah. I'm, yeah, Should very be. confident. If if it's good material and the plants are healthy, mm. and, yeah, you, and you've yeah. got good good sort of um, semi hard material as it ripens up, you should be able to strike it pretty easily. I would have thought. Yeah. Is it too late now? Mm, probably getting a bit late. So uh, so sort of January. <clears throat> if you want to do them, you could do them as hardwood cuttings in the winter. Then you'd, oh, yeah. you'd hang on until they're dormant. But you could also do. I reckon you could probably strike them in sort of early summer, mid summer. Yeah. When oh, they're right. on new growth. Yeah. So kind of yep. between. Uh, agree. Yeah, okay. And they'd need heat and... Are they hard to strike? No. No, not at all. And it's interesting. We okay. strike in water in winter. Yeah. Yeah, they okay. They are deciduous, aren't they? Yeah. 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 Yes, yeah, yes, yes, Of course they, they are. are. That's the yes. whole point. Yes. So, all um, right. Oh, so well, we've been trying to collect fruit and, you know, growing from seed seems to have this awful thing where you've got to wait for two years before they come up. No, you're better off from cuttings for sure. Yeah. Yep. Okay. I'll give them a try. Okay. Bye. Thanks very much. Good luck. Good on your Pam. Yep. Okay. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Well, I'm afraid we have run out of time for yet another week. Um, Rosie, if you can just give out a contact detail again or email address for people. Sure. The, uh, the best way for people to contact us is through our website, www.fairshare.net.au. If you're interested in volunteering, uh, go to the volunteering page. There's a, a, a link there to an online registration form. If you're interested in donating, there is a donations page. You can make a one-off donation or you could become a regular donor. Uh, if you're interested in our kitchen garden, oh, sorry, our garden manual, um, go to the uh, Kitchen Gardens link and uh, and the garden manual's there for you to download or read. Fantastic. Thank you very much, okay. Pam. A big thank you to uh, all the panel this morning and also to Robin, who's been handling all the calls. We will, of course, be back next week at uh, 7.30, but until then, bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.